I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Hey, remember your company's last offsite? That is, if you had one. Or remember the last strategic planning exercise you either directed or participated in? Let's see. Did you revisit your mission statement? How about the vision or a BHAG? What about core values? Now, I know you addressed the top priorities over the following year. SWOT analysis? Yeah, I bet you did that too. Now, did all of that work? Does strategic planning make a difference? There is nothing inherently wrong with those activities closely associated with strategic planning. But is there another way? Is there? I bumped into Simon Wardley's writing several years ago, and I was hooked. I mean, really hooked. I could not quit devouring his content. Simon was a former CEO who gave up on traditional strategic planning exercises, and that led him to creating a map to visualize the lay of the land and the environment while formulating strategy. It's called Wardley Mapping, our topic with Simon Worley coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. As I mentioned earlier, I came across Simon's writing through a series of blog posts on Medium, and they are written like book chapters. Just do a Google search on Wardley Mapping. That's Wardley, as in W-A-R, D as in dog, L as in Larry, E as in Edward, and Y as in yo-yo, Wardley Mapping, and find the first link from medium.com. And at a minimum, at least read the first four to five chapters. And I guarantee you, some of you are going to be hooked like me and just can't quit reading. And by the way, that was the first thing I brought up with Simon. I teased him that I lost a full day of productivity because of my first encounter with his writing. I'm British. We're, we're, we're really bad at taking any form of compliments or anything along those lines. I, I, I know I, I've had some influence on some people. And uh, I apologize if, um, if I uh, took an entire day of your time. I hope you found it useful. Extremely. And by the way, that is the best way I think I can give you a compliment. Hey, you, you say that you are a recovering consultant. Could you explain that? Oh, <laughs> um, so many, many, many years ago, um, before I built, uh, started building my own companies, I, I worked uh, um, on and off in, in consultancy. And um, I, I, I suppose I was much younger and I was much more sort of confident and full of, you know, oh, we know what we're doing. Uh, and I was utterly clueless. And um, I, I discovered I was clueless right up to when I became CEO of a company. I particularly discovered I was clueless. Uh, and so I like to, to call myself as a, a recovering uh, management consultant because having done a lot of practice now, I realize how little I actually knew. I want to br- I want to bring up SWAT just for a minute now because of COVID. Because of COVID, I think we need to say thank you to to Netflix. Uh, I watched uh, I watched The Queen's Gambit, and I, I also wrapped up the World War II documentary on Netflix. Outstanding. Uh, when when the Allies were planning uh, D Day. 
I don't think they did a SWOT analysis, did they? <laughs> um, so <laughs> SWOT analysis, gosh. Uh, to explain this story, um, I have to go back actually um, 16 years ago. Do so, please. Uh, um, so 16 years ago, I was running a um, uh, a company which uh, uh, we had about 14 different lines of business, millions upon millions of users, small by today's scale, but online pretty reasonable. And we are very profitable, revenue rapidly growing and all this sort of stuff. Um, but it had a problem. Uh, uh, the CEO was clueless, making up as they went along. And I was the CEO, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I mean, I, I, I uh, and, and this is when I, I, I got into reading all these different strategy books because I was so worried that people would rumble that I was just making things up. I remember I didn't know what I was doing. I was supposed to be leading, therefore I must, therefore no. And I, 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 I was getting nowhere uh, with these um, books. Um, and I went into a bookseller. Uh, bookshop, sorry. And a bookseller persuaded me to buy two copies of The Arts of War. Sorry, it's just an uh, alarm in the background. Uh, two copies of The Arts of War because uh, they're different translations. And she was very, very good bookseller. And she persuaded me to buy two, two copies. And I'm so grateful for that. Because it was in the reading of the second translation uh, that I, I noticed that Sun Tzu talked about five factors that mattered in competition. Um, you know, they have terms like heaven uh, and things like this, but it's really purpose, understand your landscape, understand how the landscape is changing, climatic patterns, orientate yourself around it, and uh, and then leadership gameplay. And this made so much sense to me. And uh, in this was this idea of landscape. And so I got into maps and the military history of maps and all that sort of stuff. And I loved it because maps were great ways of communicating, challenging and learning about a space. And then I looked around my organization and I thought, what was I using? And I was using things like uh, all sorts of financial instruments. I had lots of business cases and I had things like swap diagrams, strengths, weakness, opportunities, threats. And so I simply just uh, took an example of a military battle. It happened to be the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, so Themiscles, ancient politician, Greek general, Persians are invading, 170,000 Persians. And I just did a SWOT diagram for it. Uh, I used the map. I had the map and the, the battle. And I just did a SWOT, you know, strengths, um, well-trained Spartan army, high level motivation not to become Persian slaves. There we are. Weaknesses, uh, the E4s might stop the Spartans turning up a truckload of Persians, uh, about 170,000 of Persians turning up. Opportunities, uh, get rid of the Persians, obviously, uh, get rid of the uh, Spartans, uh, because the mystically's Athenian, independent city-states don't like the uh, the, um, the uh, Spartans. And the threats, uh, the Persians may get rid of us, and the Oracle says, you know, a dodgy film might be produced. I just put that in there for a joke a few thousand years later. And so I just was looking at this SWAT diagram and looking at a map and thought, well, how would I communicate and work out what I'm going to do in, in a battle? And I thought, well, I'm going to use a map. That's obvious. And then I looked at my organization and looked at what I was doing. And I thought, we have SWATs. <laughs> so, you know, if I compare a SWAT and a map, I'm going to use a map, not a SWAT. And all I had was SWATs. And so this is what actually kicked me off on this whole journey about how to map a competitive landscape. And um, so um, it, I'm not saying that SWATs aren't useful. Um I, th- I think once you have a map and you can see multiple places you can attack, they can help in uh, 
you know, making a decision maybe between, or at least giving some more, um, helping you think more about which particular choice to make. I mean, there's other great frameworks out there um, uh, for thinking about problems. Uh, one of my favourites, something called Kinevan. Um, but, uh, you know, there are many different sort of tools. Swaps are very sort of uh, common, and but they're, they're pointless uh, for me uh, without an understanding of your landscape. And that's, I suppose, where it all started from. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Before we get into the map itself, I want to talk about your strategy circle, which, and you, you, you hit on it uh, just a little bit, but your strategy circle, uh, by the way, I struggled a little bit with are we going to be able to pull this off? Because this would be better probably on a uh, video uh, chat where we can show some diagrams. So here we've got theater of the mind. So let's envision, let's envision a clock and, and near 12 o'clock or just maybe between 12 o'clock and two o'clock, uh, you've got purpose. I don't want to steal your thunder, but can you just kind of walk us through that, that clock? Fantastic way of saying it. So, so 12 o'clock to say two o'clock. Uh, you know, um, we'll call that the first part. That, that's purpose. And then um, uh, that's the game that you're planning. Uh, playing. So, you know, uh, it, it's your purpose, your moral imperative, what you're trying to do. The, the next bit you have to do, and we'll say that's from, uh, if that's 12 to 2, let's say 2 o'clock to, say, uh, um, 5 o'clock, uh, you need to orient yourself around the space. And that's what landscape and climatic patterns are about. So landscape is the environment you're competing in, and climatic patterns, the he heavens, it's the weather, because it's how it's also changing. Uh, and then once you've done that, uh, once you've got an idea of the landscape and how it's changing, you need to orientate yourself around this space. Uh, so that's, say, from 5 o'clock to, say, well, I don't know, 9 o'clock or something like that. And um, uh, this is um, what we call... Um, doctrine uh, uh your your principles of organization um so it is it, it is it's like those generally useful universally useful rules or patterns for orientating a company around a particular space and then once you've done that then then you're into the you know nine o'clock to twelve o'clock it's that leadership bit uh which is all about you know uh, your gameplay, deciding where you're going to attack. And then, of course, right at the 12 is the act. And then you're into the next cycle as well. And so it, it's just a loop. And um, I, it started off with Sun Tzu's five factors. Um, so uh, understand your purpose, understand landscape, understand the climatic patterns, sort of the rules of the game, how the landscape is changing. Uh, and then you're into you know, principles, doctrine, and then you're into gameplay. And it also overlaps with something uh, called the Uda Loop by John Boyd, because as soon as I 
drew, drew that out, I came come across John Boyd. I thought, oh, this is incredible work. And um, so that's that whole Orient, uh, uh, first of all, observe the landscape and the environment, then orient yourself around it, decide where you're going to attack, and then you act. And so I just draw it in a cycle. And at the heart of this, really, are two whys. Uh, the why of purpose, your moral imperative, and the why of movement. And, and the way to think about that. So um, you're one o'clock to, well, 12 o'clock to two o'clock is your why of purpose. And from two o'clock to 12 o'clock is your why of movement. It's a bit like thinking, it's about like playing game of chess. You know, your why of purpose is I want to win the game. Your why of movement is do I move this piece or that piece? And so that all depends upon, you know, your understanding of the landscape, your players, how they're playing it, you're orientating yourself around that space, deciding what where you're going to play. And then of course you make the move and you act. Can I I want to back up just a little bit to your two why questions. And this is going back to your journey, Simon. I think you'd mention if I hopefully I did not misinterpret uh, the first couple of chapters of your your book, which we'll have linked in the show notes. But I think you talked about, well, I had the purpose and then you get into leadership, but they're missing those parts in between. Again, the the, the landscape, the landscape, the climate and the doctrine. And again, th- those cannot be understated, can they? That was a big aha moment for you, right? Uh, it was huge. Um, once I once I had the cycle uh, and, and, and uh, was exploring this whole area of mapping. I realized that what I was doing was I, I was having purpose. Uh, you know, we're going to go and go and do something or whatever, whatever it happened to be. And then we basically were then a bunch of choices would come up and then we just decided one and act. Uh, and so there was no understanding of the landscape at all. No understanding of the patterns of how the landscape is actually changing. There were no understanding of the principles that you would organize yourself around this space. There was no real understanding of gameplay. Um, and ours was an action driven organization. So it was very much purpose. And, and here's a few decisions we'll pick one and we're going to act. And because that sort of makes sense. And we used to use all these things like business model, well, uh, business cases, sorry, uh, uh, SWOT diagrams, a long, a huge spreadsheet with lots of financial calculations and all the rest of it, all our return investment calculations. And, and actually, at the end of the day, it all boiled down to uh, we had a purpose, a couple of choices, we'll just go act. No awareness, no understanding of the landscape. And, and that's what dawned on me. Uh, and it was causing all sorts of problems. And um, <laughs> uh, part of <laughs> one of the issues, so I'm smiling uh, a lot here, is... Um, uh, we were quite a uh, story-driven organization. Uh, and um, the problem with stories is that uh, with a story, you have a storyteller. And so we, we spend all this time telling people, you know, to be a great leader, you've got to be a great storyteller. And then we tell them, you know, your story didn't succeed because you weren't very good at t- selling the story. So you become good at selling stories. But the issue is that now if anybody challenges the story you're given, they're actually challenging the storyteller, the person who's giving the story. Uh, and of course, you know, in organizations, what we want is actual challenge. We, you know, but we haven't got a mechanism to actually do this. So ours was a very story-driven organization. And so I, you know, this is the story, this is a vision statement, blah, 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 go do it. Well, why haven't we executed that sort of thing? 
Um, <laughs> which was actually childish and ridiculous. Uh, and, and, you know, people would know the problems, but we had no me effective mechanism for challenging. And it wasn't until we had maps. Uh, and at the point we had maps, because what we did is translate the story into a map. People would challenge the map and say there was something wrong with the map, and so you'd take the person out of it. And, and, and that, was, that was quite a dramatic uh, change uh, within the organisation. What's the difference between a model and a map. And I think that's an important question. And I, I did, and I did my homework because I, again, you're like way up there with me. So I, I want to ask Simon a question. Maybe he hasn't heard yet. And again, I want to ask the question and I think it's important. And this is not a trick question. I just help us to understand the difference. And to put this into perspective, I'm sure you've heard or seen the business model canvas. Uh, I think a guy, a guy named Oxenweiler, uh, uh, but it's, it's a good tool. Uh, Steve Blank uh, in, Sil in Silicon Valley likes it. After going through your content, I'm not saying his is bad, but I see some issues with it and how it could be made better. But go back to the question, difference between a map and a model. Okay, well, first of all, let's, let's um, I'm going to change the order up. Here. Business model canvases. I use them. I like them. Uh, um, and but what I do is once I've mapped a landscape out and I've worked out the patterns and how it's changing, and I've decided where I'm going to attack, which bits I want to own, etc. Then what I would do is I would take that and transplant it onto a business model canvas. Because for me, a business model canvas is a great tool for checking I've thought of all the different bits. Okay, uh, and if I've got all the bits in there, then I'm I'm quite happy. So I I find them. Great tools. I never start with a business model canvas, though. I start with understanding the landscape, which is a relatively quick exercise. Now, first of all, what are maps? Well, map, there is a big difference between something that's called a graph and a map. So a graph is normally where you see is a diagram with a, a couple of nodes and lines between nodes. And um, and if you, but the thing about a graph, if, if you move a piece in a graph, it doesn't actually change the meaning of the graph. So if I go three nodes and I go London, Nottingham, Dover and connect with lines as two roads, I, I can move them left and right and it doesn't change the meaning of it because it's a graph. And you see this a lot in business. So pretty much everything we've got in business, which is called a map, is in fact a graph. So business process maps, mind maps, systems maps, all those things, they're actually all graphs. And so you just pick one up. If you move a box just up a little bit or left a bit, it doesn't change the meaning. That's because it's a graph. So the difference between that and a map is a map is has space has meaning. So like a geographic map, if you take Australia and move it next to, say, the UK, it fundamentally changes the meaning of the map. Um, all maps are models. There's a couple of things you need to know. Um, all maps are imperfect by nature. So there's no such thing as a perfect map. So, um, well, if you could, if you could, which you couldn't create a perfect map of France, it would be have to be one to one scale, which means it would be the size of France. Therefore, it would be France. So, you know, <laughs> all maps are imperfect representations of a space. And they're also all models. Um, and uh, as, as, as with all models, they are wrong. Um, so they are imperfect and wrong. But that's not the thing we look for. The question is whether they are useful. Uh, and that's the only thing that really matters with maps. And I personally find them extremely useful. I know that others do as well. 
now let's get into the Warley mapping, the XY axis. And let's start with, I think in your book, you may go with the Y axis. I want to go with the X axis. And I want to be transparent with you. The first time I started reading your content and I was binge reading really from left to right. Now you may tease me. You may think, well, gosh, this is very simple, but it took me several weeks just going through it, going through it. And then I was like, oh, now I get it. Could you explain from Genesis to commodity? Can you just walk us from the left to the right? Because it is, once I had the aha, it's like, oh, I get it. And now moving the pieces from left to right or from right to left, this is big. This is like a big idea. So take it from there, Simon. Okay. So um, I I said, um, in order to map a landscape, uh, space has to have meaning. Uh, And whether it's military history, we learn from battles on the landscape and our understanding of that landscape. So somehow I had to create a tool to look at the competitive space that my company was in. Um, Now, there are three characteristics that you need fundamentally to map uh, a space. You need an anchor. So this is magnetic north. You need position of pieces. This is north, south, east or west of that. And then you need consistency of movement. Now, when we look at geographical spaces, it's pretty easy because continents don't shift much. Well, not much in our lifetime. So if I go back 200 million years ago to Pangaea, the continents were completely different. Okay, uh, and so if you try to do a map of going from A to B, and but you know if constants were shifting rapidly in your lifetime, you, you'd find it quite difficult to have an effective map. You'd have to actually map in terms of change, and so that's the problem that I actually faced. So um, I, creating an anchor was pretty easy because if you think about any business, you're going to have you know people who need things, whether it's the business, whether it's regulators, whether it's consumers, okay? Um, the second thing is to describe position. You can relatively easily do that through looking at what we call a chain of needs. So uh, the example I would give, think about a tea shop making cups of tea. You've got the business and you've got the public. Both have a need for cups of tea. Well, a cup of tea has needs. It needs tea, it needs hot water, it needs a cup. And hot water needs cold water, a kettle, and kettle needs power. So you can create a chain of needs. Now, that, you know, that's often sh- I show that as a, a y-axis. That is yeah. purely scaffolding. It's not real at all. The chain is the important thing. All that you need to know is that as you go down the chain, things get less visible to you at the top. So if I'm a consumer drinking a cup of tea, I don't really care about the power supply that heats the kettle, but that's position. And if I'm providing the tea, I do. Now, that gives me anchor and position. Now I've got this problem of movement and I've got a problem because in business, the continents are not moving every 200 million years dramatically over that sort of period. They're moving very, very rapidly in the period of 20, 30 years, 40 years, maybe. Uh, So now we have to somehow describe movement, bearing in mind that the landscape itself is changing. And so I managed to do this 
by looking at how things evolve, not how things diffuse, how we go from early adopters to laggards, but how things evolve from the genesis of the novel and new item to custom built examples of that item to then we get into a product stage of competition. And then finally, it becomes so widespread and well-defined enough, you start to get commodity and utility versions. Now, those are just labels uh, for what's uh, for stage one, two, three, and four of the evolution of capital, because it's not only physical things that evolve, but practices, data, knowledge, even ethical values do. So you can map culture, you can map, you know, science, you can map all sorts of different things. Um, but I, you know, when we talk about physical activities, we use the labels of Genesis, custom built product and commodity. And that gives me the concept of movement and uh, because it's in terms of change. And so simply doing that method of anchor by focusing on, you know, users, whether it's public government, whoever it happens to be, uh, position by describing the chain of needs and then uh, movement by saying how evolved the different forms of capital are. Remember, we can be physical activities, practices, data, all sorts of things, but they all evolve, so they all can be mapped. That gives you anchor position movement. That gives you a map. The big aha for me, and the reason I struggled with that x-axis, Simon, was at first I thought commodity, well, that's a bad thing, but I started thinking about some of the companies from the past, Compact Computer, probably the number one company in the world at one time in selling uh, uh, portable uh, computers, mini computers. And they were the first company to create the open architecture. So they wanted there to be a shift. And and by the way, I'm not a tech person, so uh, forgive me if I'm not using the, the right terminology, but they wanted that architecture to go from something far from the left, very custom to being very like a commodity so that there would be more uh, potential business, more people buying. And they, they, that was a big bet for them. And so I think being able to move along that X axis, along that value chain, that's where my eyes started to be open because I thought this is a big deal. Am I on the right track? Yes. And the one thing I would say is um, when we go from Genesis custom to product product is about usually feature differentiation right when it becomes more commodity like um this is when it's just it's about operational competition Uh, as in you know we almost don't care about the feature it's it's more uh, from imperfect to more what we call perfect competition so um you know, we had a long period of, you know, this server versus that server, you know, IBM, HP, whatever it happens to be, et cetera. Um, and yeah, you know, to, the, to the point that now, I mean, people don't really, I, I, you say the service provider, it's like Amazon or, you know, Microsoft, whoever, but it's just huge. You know, people don't care. They, they don't even know what the, the hardware or the architecture of the server it's provided, you know, particularly if they're now move up the stack into the runtime and they're using things like Lambda. They don't even know, know uh, you know, well, uh, how many CPUs or how much memory. They don't care about those things anymore. So um, when we talk about evolution, uh, that shift in product to, to commodity, and there's a, quite a long list of characteristics for this, it's all about when we, we stop caring about the thing itself. We, you know, it's, it's just something we, all we care about is how we use it. 
And it's so the feature differentiation is all gone. It's all about operational competition. And of course, that what happens then is we can build rap more rapidly things on top, which themselves evolve. And then over time, the, the thing that we at one point cared so much about becomes an invisible subcomponent that we that we don't, you know, it's it's like the power to make the kettle, to heat the kettle, to, to make your cup of tea. You only care about the cup of tea. You don't care about the thing which is far removed. What's the difference between core values and doctrine. Doctrine is a key part of worldly mapping. So when we talk about worldly mapping, we're talking about really a suite of tools uh, for anyone that's trying to move the business forward or making right choices. So in, in your book, you talk about doctrine, but what's the difference between doctrine and core values? Okay, well, I'm going to have to explain uh, a couple of terms here very, very quickly then. So when you have a map, one of the things you, you know, the first time I did a map, which was back in, oh gosh, 2005, I mapped parts of my business. You start to learn that there are patterns in the maps. So, for example, things evolve. If there's supply and demand competition, they move from genesis to becoming more commodity. As things evolve, we have inertia to change because of pre-existing capital. Maybe it's buildings, maybe it's practices, whatever it happens to be. Anyway, there's about um, there's about 30 of these sort of almost like rules of the game, and they're called climactic patterns. So they are normally things driven by supply and demand competition. Then you discover there's a whole bunch of other patterns which are you have choice over, so they're not really the rules. You know, you don't have a choice over evolution. If there's supply and demand competition, it's going to happen. Uh, but other things you can choose to do, and some of them are universally useful. And some of them are context-specific. So the context-specific things are things like gameplay, or what we call gameplay. So it's how to manipulate a space. And it could be using open to drive something to more of a commodity or use constraints to slow it down. The universally useful patterns uh, are what we call principles, and the gr- collection of them is what we call doctrine. And so they turn out to be things like focus, you know, understand your users, one of the things you learn from maps is that it's really important to understand your users. Well, you, 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 I mean, it sounds ridiculous uh, to say that, but um, I use this in creating something called the Better for Less paper for UK government, which led to a whole bunch of transformations, uh, help, like Spain Control, and helped supported the creation of something called GDS, Government Digital Services. And, you know, the idea of focusing on users, understanding your user needs, um, they, they were very uncommon. In, in, in government, actually, surprisingly, extremely uncommon in, in business as well. And so anyway, there's about, oh gosh, about 40 of those uh, uh, universally useful patterns. Now, they're universally useful, but you have choice. So you don't have to do them. You don't have to think about users, think about the user needs, understand your value chain. You you don't have to think about inertia, but it's a generally a good idea to do these things. So in total, and there's 30 climactic patterns, there's 40 odd doctrine, there's about 100 different forms of gameplay. They're all patterns which have just categorized into these different areas. Now, one of the patterns of doctrine is um, there's no such thing as core. Um, and, and so uh, the um, if you look at a company like Nokia, uh, if you didn't know, Nokia was a paper mill. 
which then became a plastics manufacturer and then became a mobile telecommunication company and, and has changed over time. And of course you change because the landscape you're competing in, nothing is static. If evolution is occurring, things will evolve. Where your focus will be it has to change. Um, so principles are universally useful and they are completely um, attuned with the fact that things will evolve. It's the part of that process. When we talk about, you know, focus on your core values, the problem with that is they tend to be static things. And the problem with being static is we don't live in a static world. If you could get rid of competition completely, um, you know, it's that mindset of the continents don't shift for 200 million years. Well, unfortunately, we don't live in that world. We, we live in a world where the landscape of business shifts in a decade. I heard you on another podcast and you said something I really appreciated. You just said, just go out and do your first map. You know, you need to just try it. And then you've worked with it for a week or two. If you don't like it, don't ever do it again. So my question is, first of all, I think I could go into just about any business and it may not look pretty, but I think I can nail this. Not as good as you. And, and there's a website and I don't have his name in front of me. They, they, it's, it's, they teach this. And uh, I, I love the website. They they could do it great. Is this, in your opinion, is this a little hard for people to start doing for the first time? Uh, the website you're talking about is probably Hired Thoughts. And um, that's it. Thank you. He does a great job. There's lots of. He's outstanding. Oh, he's he is fantastic. And so I, I do encourage people if you want to learn to map, go go talk to Ben. Um, we have something called Map Camp, where which has about uh, eighteen hundred people from around the world turn up, and they're all there are lots of people out there teaching. Um, ben is a bit of a star, uh, I have to say. I mean, um, uh, so do do I, I recommend go and have a look at his site. Um, so I normally say it takes about seven years. Uh, to learn how to map, okay, uh, and um, the uh, this normally uh, consists of um, uh, sort of uh, uh, three um, core parts. Um, the first six six months, six years, and six months is is telling yourself, I really need to get around to doing mapping. Uh, and then the final six months is, is usually a couple of weeks actually going and doing it and learning you can doing it, can do this. <laughs> and then, then the, the rest of the months actually uh, regretting that you hadn't done it beforehand and becoming better in the process. Um, so it's one of those things which, you, you know, <laughs> the only way to really effectively learn is to go and practice and have a go. And um, uh, you can, I, I find... Um, uh, you know, I, I've been doing this a long time. I mean, uh, I, I find it, it's very quick. To, I can sit down with people. We quickly map it out. We can take apart all the assumptions that we have about a business in, in matters of hours. I, I do nation states in a day and things like this as well. So it's not a huge amount of effort. It just has to have a willingness to jump in, a willingness to share it with others, a willingness to be challenged by others, which can often be fairly uncomfortable because it exposes your faulty assumptions. So you've got to, it's good that they're challenging the map, not you personally. And of course, a willingness to listen and evolve them. Um, but they're never right. 
this is the I keep on going back to this. Um, one of the actually one of the most useful things about a map is the fact that they are imperfect, which allows for other people to challenge. Uh, the 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 worst thing you can do with a map is waste too much time time trying to create a perfect map because you can't. So just get it as good as you can and share it with others so that they can challenge you. And they're also wrong because they're models and someone will come along and ba- make a better model. I mean, that, oh, that's how we started with, with geographical maps. We started off with a blank piece of paper uh, and there was a lot of getting it wrong <laughs> in the beginning. I've even heard you say, Simon, that one of the best benefits of doing these maps is just the collaboration and what comes out of it when you start doing it. And so it's, it's not like you need this perfect finished product. It's, it's what's going into it. Right. So, so one of the pieces of doctrine there, are like, as I said, there's about 40 of these university useful principles and all of this stuff, by the way, is creative commons, uh, share alike. So help yourself. I um, mean, you don't have to pay anybody for anything here. You just help yourself and read. Um, so one of them uh, is a bias towards data. And so I, I do this in a particular way, uh, which is called pre-mortem, post-mortem. So when, whenever we do something, what we do is we first sit down and spend a few hours, just map out the landscape. Um, and, you know, I've seen $1.4 billion projects all the way down to 20 million taken apart with maps in in hours in fact a one particular project with about 20 million took about 50 minutes to work out it was the wrong thing to do but so what we do is we first of all sit down and maybe spend a couple of hours at most map out the landscape and put our assumptions and challenge them and mark on there how how we think things are going to change and what we're trying to do with this project and we do that pre-mortem and that forces us to challenge the product. Have you thought about the users, the user needs, the components involved, how evolved, how whether we're building in-house, what we're outsourcing, and all this sort of stuff comes out in that process. And then what we do is we go and do the project. And then afterwards, we do a post-mortem. And the map at that point is a useful artifact to bring along. Because I have maps which go from reducing global poverty in the UN all the way down to the national statistics organizations and their use of survey systems. And we just bring up the map and within a few minutes, you're back into that landscape again, uh, rather than trying to read, you know, 100 pages of document or whatever. Uh, It's just like a few minutes, bang, you can see the components. And then what we do in the postmortem is we update the map. What did we learn? From the exercise what what did we think was going to happen we can see that on that single page of the map and all the lines we've drawn what's actually happened and so they're great tools for learning so fundamentally it's about communicating with others allowing people to challenge your assumptions because you're putting your assumptions on a map not in a story form so people are telling you that the map is wrong not you are wrong so we get rid of the politics but they're also a great great mechanism of learning as long as you do that pre Are you aware of any of the large consulting firms like McKinsey, Accenture, uh, Bain, Boston Consulting Group? Are they using uh, worldly mapping? I I don't know. I can't say. I mean, uh, they should. Well, you know, I've I've got lots of lots of books from, uh, you know, uh, Amazon's. There's loads and loads of mapping books out there. Uh, It's a wonderful book, by the way. I, I recommend to everybody Reaching Cloud Velocity. Uh, a leader's guide to uh, success. Uh, this is AWS's 
Uh, Amazon Web Services second only book. There's about 17 pages of mapping in there. And of course, uh, you know, I have my friends at uh, uh, all these different Silicon Valley companies. Uh, maps have become quite popular in different places. I, am, I, I, I can't speak to the management consultancy firms. I don't know. The other quick question I have is this this is not in the interview arc. I'll, I'll be interested in your answer. Let's take you, you could pick your, your, your company. It could either be BlackBerry or it could either be Blockbuster. So, Blockbuster, there's also another. I think it was about a 50 minute uh, documentary on the last blockbuster on Netflix. You can either pick that one or, or Blackberry. Now their doctrine, you may say, Mark, they had the wrong doctrine, but had they been using the mapping, could they avoided what happened to them? It's a fantastic question. So, so mapping itself is, um, it's taught at places like, uh, I think it's on the undergraduate course now for at the London School of Economics. Uh, um, it's uh, taught by a couple of people there. It's just a, a, an elective. Uh, I know David Gray teaches over, uh, is David Gray, I think? Well, he teaches Harvard Kennedy. They they do. And it's taught at Moscow Institute of Technology. It's even at Peking University and various others. I, you know, there's a couple of universities I pop into, do a day here or there. Um, so it's starting to spread in that sort of world. And so I love these case examples. And so I often do the uh, Nokia one, but we can say the same with BlackBerry and then the um, uh, Blockbuster Netflix one. So the problem with Blockbuster is that um, Blockbuster was first with a website, first with video ordering online, first with video streaming experiments, and first to go bankrupt. It literally out-innovated everybody you know, so if people say, oh, they're dinosaurs, no, forget it. They out-innovated everyone. But the problem is past success, and it was late fees. It was their pre-existing business model. Now, this is an interesting one, because if you map that space out, you can see how the components are actually evolving. And one of the things you learn about is how we have inertia because of pre-existing business models. And it's the same with cloud computing. Pre-existing business models had inertia to change. AWS wasn't in the compute business able to play that. So this is an example of what we call predictable disruption. Now, Apple versus Nokia or Apple versus BlackBerry, which is product-product substitution, is is entirely unpredictable. It really is difficult. It, it's, it's always post-event do we know who actually won because you, you – couldn't know that it was going to be Nokia or, or Apple. In fact, uh, Clayton Christensen uh, said he didn't think Apple would be successful. And it's not because he's daft. It, well, he's obviously passed away, but it wasn't because he was daft. It was because it was unpredictable. And so there was used to be this argument, Lepore versus Christensen, uh, on whether disruption was predictable or whether it wasn't predictable. And the answer is there's two different forms. Product, product substitution, which is unpredictable. Product to utility, which is predictable. The problem is if you can't see the landscape, you cannot distinguish between those different forms. So all you ever hear is disruption. And then people arguing, is it predictable? Is it not predictable? And the, I, and the answer is they're both right and both wrong because there's two different forms. So um, I love the example because BlackBerry is in a case of product-product substitution, completely uh, impossible to predict which way you are going to go. Um, and uh, uh, whereas Blockbuster was product to utility. And if they'd had maps and they knew how to play the game, they didn't need to go against the wall. Hey, we got to go. But this is CFO Bookshelf. 
And even Robert Corum, who is the biographer of John Boyd's uh, life, we even asked him this question. So we always ask everyone, Simon, and by the way, I can tell you're sitting in this great library of books. Uh, what are some of your favorite books? <laughs> well, look, there are so many wonderful books out there. Um, there's a lot of really good books that I enjoy at the moment. Um uh, you know, there's a book on Carnarvon, which is out, Flow Architectures uh, from, sorry, a book on Carnarvon uh, by Dave Snowden and others, uh, Flow Architectures, book by James Urquhart, fabulous book by O'Reilly. Um, I'm just looking at the books that I'm reading. Uh, there's Working Backwards by, by uh, um, uh, again, uh, Amazon and Reaching Cloud Velocity, Arthur Strashy, great little book, which has lo- loads of maps and everything else. But, um, gosh, the one book that I've read every single day, um, and I give away more than any other, um, I, I keep on, I'm, I, I bought this so many times, it is um, uh, Tao Te Chung by Lao Tzu. Um, I, I, I started reading it when I think I was about 13, 14. Um, I probably... <laughs> I've probably read it every day since. And um, it is the most incredible book, uh, which has transformed my life many, many times in many, many different ways. Well, this has been fantastic. And there is a PDF document of your book. It's free. I was just sending the link to one of my clients. It's like 34 megabytes. I thought PDF documents, but it's 700 pages. And this is a book that you don't speed read. Uh, I would just say even the first four chapters, you're going to get it. I mean, you're really going to get the heart, the meat, the meat and potatoes of worldly mapping. Again, I'm not just saying this, Simon. Uh, This is just fantastic work. And I think it's something that you've been working on this for over uh, 10 years, and I have a feeling you're still adding to it. Is that correct? Uh, Well, I, I started in 2005. Uh, and that's right so that's 16 years ago <laughs> started mapping and and um I, i'm using it continuously um uh, i mean i used it uh, in so many different fields uh, in the commercial world um so ubuntu we used to be i used to run strategy for a company called canonical provides a operating system called ubuntu uh, we were, and this was back in 2008. We were up against Red Hat and Microsoft, great giants, if you happen to work in the software field. Uh, I think we were 3% of the operating system market. Uh, we used the maps to target the cloud, uh, which was a new space back in 2008. Uh, and it, we took 18 months and cost about half a million. And we went from 2 to 3% to 70% of all cloud computing. And that was against Microsoft and Red Hat. So, and that's just one example of many, many examples. Um, uh, so I've been using it uh, last 16 years. Uh, is it continuously developing? Yes. It is all Creative Commons share alike. Someone will find a better way of mapping. And if you look, you'll even find there's a map of mapping out there, something I actually map mapping itself. But because uh, the tool's not any use if it can't be used against itself. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Again, Simon Wardley, thank you very much. Incidentally, we recorded that call when it was around midnight, his local time. And all I can tell you is that Simon is a very kind and generous person. 
Oh, yeah, if you didn't get it, pretty smart, too. Uh, to start reading his content, besides doing a Google search on Wardley Mapping, head over to, and by the way, this is not his website. It's learnwardleymapping.com. Learnwardleymapping.com. All one word, no dashes, nothing like that. And then click on reference up in the navigation area and click on the book. So click on the reference link and then click on the book and you'll see three options, which are all free. And guys, please don't give up on this easily. For me, the learning curve was high, uh, but there are just so many valuable insights we gain from Wardley mapping. You don't have to be an expert. Just be aware of some of the key concepts, which are huge or could be. Hey, speaking of learnwardleymapping.com, the guy behind that site is Ben Mosier. Uh, this guy, oh man, he, he is a rock star uh, when it comes to teaching Wardley Mapping. And I'm calling him the Ryan Holiday or Shane Parrish of Wardley Mapping. And if you like this discussion with Simon, then check out the interview with Ben, which you'll find wherever you are listening to CFO Bookshelf. Guys, I'm Mark Gandy. Thank you for listening. Until next time.